Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we talk about our favorite comic books and graphic novels, and on episodes like this, we talk with our favorite people making them. Today I am joined by the comic book writer Mark Russell, responsible for some of my favorite comic books like Flintstones, Superman Space Age, Second Coming, and recently Traveling to Mars. How's it going, Mark? It's going very well, thank you. Yeah, so... For people that might not be familiar with your work or may have only experienced you through something like Flintstones. known as most of the human race. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for those people out there. um, How would you describe your approach to comic books? Well, I think that, you know, it's not very calculated. Uh, I got into comics not really knowing how to write comics, and I'm still not sure I do. So my approach is basically just to write about whatever it is I feel most important to me at the time. Mm -hmm. I try to write about big subjects and I try to write about things that I feel like I can really just sort of empty my tank on. And uh, as opposed to telling stories, I like to just sort of use the stories to talk about what I really want to talk about, which is usually about the, uh, the fundamental failings of civilization and what it would take to, to fix them. I guess my question for you is how do you do that all day? Like, how do you look at the failings of society and be like, I'm going to turn this into some art and then just like go to bed at the end of the day? Because like, it's not entirely hopeless to me. It's, you know, and part of it is that, you know, as much as I feel like civilization and our institutions have failed us, I feel that the hero of the story really is human resiliency and how people themselves are, you know, more important to me than ever. And I think that's really what the stories are about. It's about how important people are and about how terribly they're being served by their institutions. Uh, So it's not all, you know, bleakness. It's not all hopelessness. Uh, A lot of it is based upon the things I I love about my fellow human beings. And so I lean on that. That's how I go to bed at night, I think. I, I would agree with that, just as someone who's read your work, I think I always walk away with a feeling that the characters themselves tended to be kind. Like if I had to sum up a Mark Russell book, the institutions are cruel, but characters and humans tend to be kind. And I think for someone who grew up in like a relatively small part of the country, just outside of Salt Lake City, moving to New York City has really like made that lesson from your books incredibly clear to me. I'm like, I moved to the beating heart of capitalism and like, boy, do they tell you every day what's going on here. But there is such a plethora of kind people and funny people in funny situations. And I think one of the big hallmarks of your work as well is just this deep sense of humor. And I loved in a recent issue of traveling to Mars where you talked about humor as a coping mechanism for humanity and for just the absurdity of life. Can you talk a little bit about the role of humor in your work? Yeah. Well, and I think that the, the um, episode that you are referring to is where I kind of talk about the evolutionary beginnings of laughter, which, and I have no idea whether or not this is true, but this is what I read. And it kind of makes sense to me uh, that, that laughter evolved among chimpanzees as sort of a way to announce the danger had passed. So like you see a, a giant snake, you see a anaconda or whatever slither by, 
or a giant bird fly by and it doesn't see you and it and it leaves you alone and then the chimps would let out this like little sort of he 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 sound to uh announce that the danger had passed and i feel like that's sort of i think what the role that that humor plays in my writing as well is that like it's a way of sort of denying the power of the danger that I'm talking about, that we are somehow going to survive in any way, or that it may, you know, even if it seems dark, we could still somehow, it, it, it hasn't won yet. I like that a lot. I feel like it immediately recontextualizes a lot of my favorite works of comedy and just realizing that like, this sort of dark sense of humor and not in like the edgy college boy way. It's like, I've got a real dark sense of humor, but things that really will look at just like these awful situations and just laugh at them. They tend to be some of the most cathartic bits of comedy for me. So, I mean, I don't know if it's true or not about the chimp evolution, but it, it rings true to the kinds of things that make <laughs> if, me laugh. Even if it's not, it's a good, it's a good story. So I'm going to run with it. Uh. <laughs> exactly. So, I, I was really impressed with Traveling to Mars. I continue to be as it continues to go on. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, what was on your mind as this book came to be from you? Yeah, well, uh, a lot of things are, were on my mind. I think, one, my own sort of personal sense of regrets, things I'm, you know, I wish I could go back and do differently in life, but also a, a broader, more existential sense of regret of, like, uh, things we as a as a species could have gone back and done differently, and it's sort of where the two of them converge, because it's about this guy who is going to be the first uh, human being to ever set foot on Mars, and the reason he was chosen is because he's uh, got he's he's terminally ill, he's got cancer, uh, so they don't have to worry about bringing him back. So the whole trip is him sort of remonstrating about the, the wasted opportunities he had in life and how he should have done things differently. Uh, but meanwhile, he's going there to um, claim this this uh, fuel, this natural gas that's under the surface of Mars for a species that has basically painted itself into a corner because we've already used all of our fossil fuels on Mars or on Earth. And even if we get the natural gas on Mars, it's only going to keep us afloat for you know maybe another generation. And so the end of the human race, at least as human civilization as we've come to know it, is on the horizon. And just in the same way that the end of his own life is on the horizon. So it's really kind of about the, the, the two sort of at the same time, personal regret and sort of societal regret. Is which, which bit of that regret for you has been more interesting to explore through this work? Do you feel like you spend more time thinking about these big existential questions? Or at the end of the day, is it just these personal shortcomings and mistakes that yeah i feel like it's more the big existential questions because i you know the 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 small mistakes are there with you all the time and so you don't really need to think about them too much they're just sort of woven into the fabric of your being whereas the big ones are things you might actually be able to do something about ironically you know uh, there are things that you know we we could actually still change that um or you know they're it's like i can have new thoughts about those things so and also, you know, it's a chance to like sort of really talk about a lot of things that don't fit into other works, just sort of 
things like the chimp, you know, the chimp source of humor and, uh, in, you know, theories of, of how we came to be in this situation. So in a lot of ways, it sort of, it reminds me of how I felt writing the Flintstones and that it's mm-hmm. about these sort of big, um, you know, fundamental issues that, that are, that are, that confront the human race about why we are the way we are. I agree. I, it feels very similar to the Flintstones. I, I know it's, it's probably like a two edged sword. Stephen King talks about how universally people love the stand. And he's like, that was my fifth book. And everyone says it's my best one. Like I've written 70 since then. Like (laughs) I, I think that the Flintstones is a comic that you will absolutely be remembered for. It's one that I continue to come back to. It's one that everyone who touches it loves it so much. And I think traveling to Mars because of its sort of vignette structure, it does feel very reminiscent of something like the Flintstones. How does working on something like that, which feels like more of a series of strung together episodes compare against something like second coming where it's a much stronger through line and narrative arc? Yeah, well definitely when you're writing something like second coming, the, 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 the story itself, I think takes on a greater importance because it's not a series of independent chapters that could exist without each other it's it's a it's a like you say it's a through line it's my russian novel i've written more uh issues of second coming than anything else and it's all telling one story that's moving inexorably towards uh, a finish that i that an end that i know uh so it's very different in that sense in that you're having to pay more attention to the vagaries of plot and stuff Whereas things like the Flintstones or traveling to Mars are more just about my own thoughts. They're just more about, you know, not necessarily the, the story, which is, you know, per, I could describe in like a paragraph or two. It's more about the things I'm trying to say along the way. Which approach do you prefer? Well, I think the second one is harder because <laughs> you have to have things to say, uh, <laughs> You know, and, and things to say worth writing down, which is always the yeah. big challenge if you're going to, if you want to become a writer. Someone once said that, you know, the difference between writing a, a short story and a novel is that you can have one good idea and write a short story. If you're writing a novel, you need to have a hundred good ideas. And I feel like that's kind of like the way uh, Second Coming, or not Second Coming, but like Traveling to Mars or the Flintstones, is you need to have a ton of good ideas. Not to say that Second Coming isn't also got uh, you know a good number of good ideas, but it's more about letting it's more of stream of consciousness. It's more about letting the one good idea sort of percolate and uh, and unfold. Whereas something like Traveling to Mars, the Flintstones, is about coming up with a lot of ideas, each one of which could be its own series. Yeah, it's very clear reading your comic books that you are a well-read person who likes to research and look into these things. I mean, there'll be a little vignette about the space elevator and why it's important to deep space travel. My question for you is what does your research process look like? Are these just things that you happen to be reading and they bleed into your work or do you more intentionally go and seek out things once you've decided on a project? Yeah, I do a lot of research, especially for a project where I'm actually talking about something that's based in science, like traveling to Mars Mm-hmm. But for that, I feel like the research was mostly to fill in my own gaps in knowledge. Like a lot of the stuff, like the space elevator or the um, the the thing about the chimps, 
or you know the um, the thoughts about like who is the the person who is the most immortal human being who ever lived in the sense that we remember them. Those are all things I had sort of in my skull or in my notebook, you know, before, but, but things like the Armstrong effect or uh, you know, what it would be like or what the, um, the landing process would be like on Mars. Those are things I have to research specifically for the series. But one of the things I really liked about doing this is that it kind of combines both my love of philosophy with my love of sort of science and, and allows me two things that wouldn't normally go together become the peanut butter and chocolate in my confectionery treat. Yeah. You and Philip K. Dick can hold that down and say, we're going to give you some philosophy and science fiction. As, as someone who has attempted to write a science fiction novel and then at the end of it realized I much prefer philosophy to science fiction what draws you to science fiction as a genre, as a I writer? The, I think it's the thought experiment aspect. It's the idea that like, well, what, how can I put this into a metaphor? So it, I think all science fiction is ultimately sort of about the present. It's ultimately mm-hmm. about the, what's going on in the world now at the time of the, the, the author is writing, but it allows them to come up with a metaphor or to say, well, if, if this, if, if this one breakthrough happened, it would get so much worse or better. Or, you know, you, you, you set like conflicts on earth in outer space or in a different time. And then people can, who might be defensive or identify with one side or the other in the conflict could suddenly, you know, read it objectively. They can, they, they can read yeah. um, it without taking, without being defensive. You know, it's like if you came out to American, if you came out to an American audience and said, Oh, you're, you're just basically destroying the planet in your quest to control the oil, they probably wouldn't get very far into the book. But if you say there's this planet called Arrakis that has spice <laughs> and there's these, these, these bullies, the Harkonnens who control the planet, you know, and then you can read that as an American, you can read it without feeling defensive about it. Yeah. I, <clears throat> I really like that. I recently had a conversation with Ram V where he talked about how he does not like using parable and metaphor in his work. And I have been fascinated since to talk with you and ask, you clearly do like, we just talked about, you yeah, like metaphor. No, I'm, I'm on like the other parable. side of that spectrum, I think. <laughs> what, what strength, beyond what we just talked about, with people being able to approach it objectively, as someone who likes to craft parable and metaphor, what's exciting to it, about it to you as the creator of it? Well, for one thing, it's just its own work of art. When you come up with like a really clean parable for something or you come up with like, it's almost like writing a good joke, which mm-hmm. almost never happens. You almost never write like a good, you know, like knock, knock joke or a good man yeah. walks into a bar joke. But when you do, it's transcendent. So it's like, wow, this is like <laughs> a hard art form to crack and make. Real. And I feel like parables and metaphors, which maybe Rom perhaps smartly doesn't, doesn't like them, steers clear of them. It, they're sort of like that. It's sort of like telling a joke, and it, it's it's so the 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 um, the likelihood of failure is so high that when you actually feel like you've pulled it off, that it it does feel kind of special. Yeah. Do you feel like your background with Christian scripture influences your desire at all to interact with parable and metaphor? Because I mean. Mm-hmm. 
this might be bearing the lead. We're going to talk about this stuff. I have a degree in biblical Hebrew, oh, wow. and now That's I also cool. have a complicated relationship with religion. Every time I read your work, I'm like, there's my soul sister. Right like there. probably everybody who comes from Salt Lake City. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone who comes from there and doesn't live there anymore. Yeah, is like, everyone man, who got escape velocity. No, I feel I like this. have a complex relationship. <laughs> yeah, most apostates, uh, whatever the religion, I think. Are, I think I think when you raise children in a religion, particularly a fundamentalist religion that sort of dictates every aspect of their life, uh, mm-hmm. one of two things happens: either you 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 crush their their independence and they just sort of become a willing sort of um, acolyte of that religion, or the opposite: you create a rebel and they do whatever it takes to like escape. You know, they 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 run and they never look back. And there's almost no middle ground. And I feel like I was one of the latter ones, and perhaps you were too. <laughs> but you're right. It, it, you know, as much as I like to think, oh, I've, I'm, I've gotten away, it still has affected me in ways I'm probably not entirely even recognizant of. And one of those is probably a, a sort of a taste for, you know, the spirit, the scriptural parable. Yeah, it it bleeds in. Yeah. No, it it, it it's like you you know the foods you ate when you growing up are you know it's like you might not you might become a sophisticate you might become a gourmand who moves to Paris, but part of you will always want a you know bologna sandwich. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. So, as a as a rebel, as a self proclaimed apostate, how does it feel to work on a book like Second Coming? It's clear that you are looking at the institution of Christianity and sort of picking it apart, but then also looking at sort of the, what I would describe as like the missed opportunity of Christianity and pointing out some of these moments where Jesus is someone who is interesting in this book. He does have interesting things to say that the people around him don't want to interact with. How, how does it feel for you to walk that line and make a book like that? Well, it's cathartic, uh, but but I think that for me, you know, I, I, this is probably the story of every religion about how it's been co-opted by the empire that happens to govern the temporal uh, reality that of the of the people who practice the religion. But I think what's unique about Christianity is that it's a religion that was built about subverting empires. I mean, it, the whole yeah. reason the religion exists is because. Um, you know, Christ needed to come up with an answer. Well, what do we do now that the Romans are here? Mm-hmm. And uh, how do we get rid of the Romans? And, you know, his answer was basically, well, you got to drop out. You can't, you just, you you can't play their game. And I think that's what separates them from most of the other of the claimants uh, to the title, you know, uh, Messiah, is that most of the other would-be messiahs said, well, you got to fight the Romans. You've got to uh, kill them, which is precisely the sort of game the Romans were eager to play because that was what they were good at. It's like, oh, good. You know, it's like, it's like, uh, well, the only way to like beat Mike Tyson is to get in the ring with them and, you know, and spar with them. Mike Tyson will take that match up, you know, 10 times out of 10. Uh, but if you sue him in court or, you know, you, uh, you challenge him to a game of checkers, then, you know, he might he stand a chance. Um, yeah. And I feel like that's kind of what Christ did with the Roman Empire. He, you know, they were prepared for uh, boxing and he challenged them to a, a, a game of, um, uh, uh, to a staring contest, and, uh, and that's one you can you can actually win is if you do not 
if you do not play the sorts of games that empires are built to play, and the empire is basically built to play one of two games, uh, do what we say or we'll kill you, or uh, here's some money to do what we say, bribery or, or uh, revenge. And I feel like the entire religion of Christianity, as it was constructed by Christ, as it was, you know, as, as he, as he preached it was about denying the power of those two very things about don't be somebody who can be bribed. Don't care about material possessions and don't be somebody who will be scared. Don't be somebody who can be threatened. Uh, don't be somebody who um, cares too much about this life. And, uh, and, I, and I feel like that was probably the scariest thing you could have shown an empire, which is why they had to, to, to crucify him. But the irony is that since then, you know, the success of the religion was that it became the official religion of empires. Yeah. You know, yeah, sort of, uh, rage against the machine brought to you by capitalism, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those interesting paradigm moments in the history of the world. If Constantine had not been <laughs> coerced or interested into making this the state religion, how much different would the world be? Yeah. The world would be very different. Uh, for one thing, I think Christianity would have survived. I don't think its success was entirely due to the fact that it, you know, it won over an empire. Although it wouldn't be the official religion of like three continents, you know. Yeah. It, it, but it would still survive. But it would be more like Jainism or Buddhism, uh, where there would be lots of different flavors and different um, approaches to it. The, there never would have been the the need to get rid of all the heretics and to burn all the uh, the Gnostic gospels and the books that didn't conform the canon mm-hmm. and it would be much more informal it would wouldn't be the the religion of power structures it'd be the religion of people you know trying to exist around the power structures yeah yeah <laughs> the death of the home church for the roman yeah. empire so in your in second coming for those who haven't read it we large concept here jesus christ second coming occurs and he is paired with a Superman stand-in for the story. And the two bounce off of each other and inform each other throughout the course of the book. So my question, Mark, is what did you see in a character archetype like Superman that made him interesting to pair with Jesus for this story? And then how is your approach to Superman within Second Coming different from your approach to the official Superman in something like Superman space age. Yeah. Well, I think one of the great sort of turns that this story took for the better was when uh, I gave up on, I initially, I wanted to actually be Superman that, that, that Jesus Christ shared an apartment with. But when I pitched Mm -hmm. it to DC, you know, Dan DiDio at the time said, I get death threats when he refuses to say the pledge of allegiance. So I'm not going to let you, um, share an apartment with Jesus Christ. So <laughs> I had to change it to a, a stand-in, uh, Sunstar. But that really was a good move, I think, because then it allowed me to not make him like Superman. I, I got to make him a little more flawed, mm-hmm. a little more human. And I think that the second coming really kind of started as two different ideas. It started as one about an idea of like the superhero who um, feels the pressure of the world and what the expectations of having to like save everyone would do to you sort of mentally and psychologically of feeling how you would begin to resent people and, and how you would begin to sort of collapse under the weight of expectations that you have to be there for everyone. 
And then also the story of uh, Jesus Christ coming back to earth and being incredibly disappointed with what they have done to your teachings in the last 2000 years since you've been gone. And it occurred to me at some point that these are really two sides of the same coin, that this was telling the same story, but from two very different angles. And so I, I just basically uh, merged the two together into one really bad sounding idea of like Jesus Christ coming back to earth and sharing an apartment with a superhero. I, I mean, it works. It's got some magic to it for sure. It's the kind uh, of thing when you start describing it to people, they think you're lying. Like this, nobody would be dumb enough to actually write this comic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of comics though, is like, like it we is. started at the beginning of this is 99% of the people that would get very mad about this aren't looking at it. And the people yeah, who I are, think the, this is absolutely the magic for comics is that you can get away with doing something like this. It's like, good luck, you know, going to, you know, um, Lionsgate or whoever going to like, you know, Paramount and pitching a movie, <laughs> you know, it's like, we want, we want you to spend $32 million making this movie about Jesus Christ returning to earth and, and, and getting engaging in a buddy comedy with the, uh, with the superhero. See how well that goes. Um, but a comic book, maybe, you know, uh, comic books, you can get away with telling stories that, that are maybe not obviously lucrative, uh, or, or, and you don't have like focus groups or, you know, teams of executives worried about you wasting their money, you know, sort of hovering over your shoulder, seeing what you're doing on the dailies. Yeah. I maybe sticking with this line a little bit. I know I've heard you recount your comic book origin story on other podcasts and it's a well-trod path it's a story i've told probably about a hundred times yeah so we're i'm not going to make you do that again but my question would be as someone who kind of found a side door into comic books what are some other ways that you have fallen in love with the medium since working in it well i think that a big one is the one we just discussed the fact that i can tell stories in comics i couldn't possibly tell another medium. And also I think what I also really like is that it's got so much enthusiasm, sort of like ground swell enthusiasm around it. Like there's no other sort of artistic um, artistic medium. And believe me, I've, I've tried them where you have like conventions where there's like tens of thousands of people ready made to, you know, just wandering around looking for something like what, maybe what you are, are publishing or you know the uh the comic book shops where you have these sommeliers basically who are recommending to people come in it's like i i have i've written prose books and you know i've had them in bookstores but nobody in the bookstore is saying oh well let me tell you about this you know book this this man's written you know let me you know let me sh- show you that you know they, they might have the staff pick section but other than that it's like they don't know your book from any of the other 6,000 volumes in the store. Whereas a comic book shop, the comic book owners, shop owners usually know the product. They know what they're, what they think they're, they're they know their cut, they know the product and they know their customers. So they're, they usually kind of like can tell by somebody's pull box, what else they might be into and recommend your comic to them based upon that. And to me, that's magical. That's like something you, you never really see in any other sort of artistic, slash come uh commercial medium yeah i i recently 
was talking with with Tom King about exactly this. Like, there's no other me- artistic medium out there that is going to care about you. Like, you could have the biggest book of the week, and it it will be all done three weeks from now at Barnes and Noble. Whereas a comic, yeah, book, if like, right, people if want you, it. Uh, and I, I've had books uh, that that were reasonably successful. And it's like, if it's more than like six months old, the bookstores don't want to hear about it. It's like, it's like, just be gone with you already. You had your moment. Uh, whereas comics, it's like, if you have a book, if you have a, a trade paperback graphic novel that like resonates with people, it will stay on the shelves for decades. Yeah. And people want to talk about it. Like it's, it's really inspiring. I, I love it. Have you found working in just regular prose novels and working comics as well? A lot of people talk about how much they love the collaboration of the art form. Is that something that you have found a lot of resonance in as well with comic books? Or is that not as been as big of a priority for you with your comics? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, you know, depends upon, like most of life depends upon your partner, <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of it depends upon the, 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 the person you're collaborating with. And there are certain artists where it's just like, this makes my work so much better. The fact that I have this person that gets what I'm trying to do better than I do myself, or that will take what I'm doing and make it, you know, 10% funnier, like people like Steve Pugh, um, and, and Mike Allred and Bob Q immediately popped to mind. I'm sure there, there are others I'm just not thinking of, but it's like people I've, I've done numerous collaborations with and it's always so much better to work with them than work with somebody I don't have that relationship with where they just sort of get what I'm going for and will take the ball and, and, and run with it and, and inject their own creativity. It's it's so much better than it would be creating something on my own, I think. All right. So one of my favorite bits of your work that I see almost nobody talk about is your time with the character Red Sonia. I adore that run. It's my favorite run with the character. And I wanted to know a little bit about your your process with that book, where your idea came for for your run and just how it felt to play with that kind of corporate character versus what you've done with superheroes yeah well after uh after lone ranger uh, they the uh dynamite offered me red sonia and the thing that sort of drew me to that character and maybe want to write her was one they offered me sort of an ongoing which i'd never written an ongoing before so to this day i've written more issues of red sonia than i've written any of anything else and two, they allowed me to draw upon some of my, my own personal interests, which in this case, you know, were ancient history. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge ancient history fan. And so I thought, well, I'm going to base this this run of Red Sonia that I'm writing on an actual historic event. I mean, granted, I took a lot of liberties with it. This is a very <laughs> loosely based on, but it's based on the um, the queen of the, the Mascotai named Tamiris. And the Mascotai were a steps tribe, sort of like Hyrcania in um in in red sonia mm-hmm. and uh in queen tamiris is the one who killed um who uh killed cyrus the great who at the time was the most powerful man in the world and leader of the, the emperor of persia 
Mm-hmm. And so how did this, you know, basically not even a real nation state, this tribe, you know, with a, like sort of a bush queen, managed to defeat the most powerful man in the world. And she did it by inventing the, uh, the scorched earth campaign where she would just, you know, retreat, wouldn't give battle and burn the fields. They couldn't feed their horses. They couldn't feed their soldiers. And then when they were exhausted and starving, then she turned and attacked and destroyed them. So I wanted to kind of do a uh, story based on that. And also to bring in new characters, my own cast of characters, and to draw a lot upon uh, the Art of War uh, by Sun Tzu and um, other ancient sources like the Jewish Midrash for some of the mythological elements. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was just you know a candy store of ancient history and old belief systems I was able to draw upon to create this world. And I think that's why I poured so much energy into it. Yeah, as... Somebody who has spent so much of my life thinking about the ancient Near East and all of those players, I it was very much appreciated. Like three issues in, I was like, "Oh, we're playing with my favorite toys." Yeah. No one ever plays with my favorite toys. I, yeah, I think this is one thing that's sort of missing from comics. There's a lot of comics that draw upon other comics, like sort of mm-hmm. other runs of comics or uh, else worlds of comics, or you know, sort of like uh, the history of comics. It's uh, of of those characters in comics. There's a dearth, I think, of people drawing upon real world sources. Yeah. People drawing from history or life or things outside the comics world to tell comic stories. And I think that's what keeps the medium fresh and interesting when you're taking things from outside comics and bringing them to the table. I absolutely agree. I, it leads really well into the next thing I was going to ask, actually. I was talking with the the cartoonist Juni Ba, which I don't know if you've looked at any of his work, but it's stunning stuff. I highly recommend it. And he talked about using history as a source, or he says, when you reference other people's books or movies, ultimately you're referencing their idea of what characters and humans should do. When you reference history, there was no divine guiding hand. There is no thematic through line to what that character is doing. It's just a human acting a certain way. So you can create much more real human emotion and stakes. Yeah, I think the, the, the big difference is incentives. I mean, when you're talking about, uh, when you're talking about fictional characters, a lot of times they, you know, they, they're incentivized to do what's best for the story. Mm-hmm. But in real life, in history, people do what's best for themselves, you know? Yeah. So it's a very different sort of uh, set of incentives. And I think it makes people feel a little more relatable and real and flawed and uh, in a lot of ways, interesting um, when you draw upon people who have done things that weren't necessarily heroic or were sometimes heroic, but not always, which is what you usually find in history as opposed to fiction. Well, I think an interesting approach to your Red Sonia and drawing from history is how human the characters still feel. I feel like a lot of the time people talk about the past as if it was a completely different species of humans wandering around. Like we haven't been the same people just in different circumstances. And did you did you ever feel any pushback or pressure about how like people complaining about anachronism with the setting? Or do you feel like that was pretty well accepted, like the tone that you wanted with the setting that you wanted? Well, I think most people who didn't like it probably just gave up uh, reading it for yeah. two or three issues, which is my preferred approach uh, <laughs> for people who do not enjoy my work. You know, by by all means, if you prefer a different flavor of ice cream, don't don't order the Rocky Road. Yeah, <laughs> that's there's no shame in ordering salted caramel or whatever. 
it's slash and burn comics, if you will. You know, yeah. you, you lure them along and then send them packing back to, to Spider-Man. But yeah, no, I didn't get really any sort of pushback from people on uh, the, um, the anachronisms or the history, because I think the history was sort of not, it wasn't really forefront. It wasn't, you know, uh, claiming to be history. It was just sort of this sort of base, this sort of um, undercurrent. So uh, the only sort of complaints I got from Red Sonia were uh, when I quit <laughs> writing, which <laughs> they weren't complaining that I was going, they're complaining that I would that I would deign, you know, to like give up a, a, a character, you know, and that I had ongoing. I don't know. I didn't get a lot of complaints about that either. So no, it was pretty. Uh, I think most people who who read it seemed to really like it. Of course, most people who read it knew what they were getting into. I think is yeah. I'd been around for a little bit at that time. Um, we talked earlier about why you like using the genre of science fiction. What do you feel like playing in the swords and sandals playground brought for you as a writer? Well, I think, you know, we've already kind of t t talked about a little bit. The uh, science fiction allows me to, to talk about the present and the, as it relates to the future mm -hmm. and the swords and sandal allow me to talk about the present as it relates to the past, you know, um, about these are the same sorts of issues of like power dynamics and um, people gilding their own uh, they're gilding their own their own pocketbooks while at the expense of like their their nation and everybody else they know and these sorts of things are common to the ancient you know people as they are to us and so I think in a lot of ways right when, when I imbue my stories with ancient history it, I'm sort of revealing how much we still have in common with ancient history how much we haven't really changed that much the world has changed the mm -hmm. world, the technology, and a lot of the, you know, the the rules obviously have changed. But the fact that people still want to be thought of as great and uh, and and magnanimous, but they want to be sort of selfish and um, and powerful is is kind of a ubiquitous theme throughout history and and of course the present. It's an interesting through line of this conversation has been you're talking about like the duality of man and seeing like the kindness of people next to the harshness of institutions. Do you feel like your view of the world has changed over the course of your writing career because of your writing and observation or maybe walk me through? Yeah, I think it has. And I think it's become a little more optimistic. Okay. Um, I think it's become a little more nuanced and that I don't think we're as doomed. And I don't think that institutions are as um, inherently cruel as I, as I used to, I just think we have through inattention and, uh, and allowed them to get that way. I think that we have sort of overestimated the, how these institutions would how well these institutions would be able to continue running on their own without our constant like tinkering and oversight. It's like, if you own a house, you know, things are always breaking down. You're always having to do repairs. It doesn't mean houses are evil. Uh, it just means that you've got to be on top of them. And I kind of feel that way about human institutions now. Well, of course we shouldn't expect, you know, the constitution or Congress or our presidential elections or religions or the economy to just coast, the way it did for 150 years or whatever without, you know, without us having to constantly worry about it or fix it or change it. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a house in which we live and the plumbing is going to break at some point. You got to be prepared for that. I mean, 
the man of metaphors himself. That was that's really good. I'm gonna use that on my dad. Like you what go. you just talked about. I was like, there's my holidays right there. Yeah, I think that's, that that's kind metaphor. of you know, I mean the the non ideological, just sort of the boring part of my political philosophy is like, yeah, you got to fix the plumbing. It's it's like institutions are always outdated. They are by nature, uh, you know, built to deal with last generation's problems, and so to to keep them from becoming a, a mill around our neck, a millstone that's going to drag the human race down and drown us. In order to keep it from that, we have to keep updating them. We have to keep upgrading them and we have to bring in our institutions up to the speed at which society is changing as much as possible. And, uh, and I think that's what conservatism and sort of right-wing philosophy is directly, um, created to, to prevent yeah. they 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 want i think this is the big difference between say liberalism and conservatism is that liberalism believes that institutions should change to serve people and conservatism is fundamentally the belief that that people should change to serve institutions that are traditional and you know like like gay marriage is a perfect example it's like you, you, do you believe that marriage should change to serve you know the people who uh maybe need it and the people we now acknowledge are among us uh you know the people that are, are coming we've not finally allowed to come out of the closet should marriage be for them or should everyone everyone who does not fit into the traditional uh definition of marriage should they have to go back into the closet to keep this institution of marriage the way it used to be and i think that's that's sort of the uh conservative versus liberal answer on pretty much every institution should we update it to meet the changing society or should we sort of push the society back under the stairs to, to conform to the traditional institution. And I'm a, I'm a big proponent of the former. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's often hard to understand where the other is. Even yeah. I don't, I don't get it. Um, I, uh, and it seems to me, although I'm, I'm sure there's, I'm not saying that all conservatives are cruel and evil, but it seems to me a, a form of, in a, in a perhaps unintentional, but a, a form of cruelty to say you, you can, you, you cannot function. You cannot live your life the way you want because it, it violates the tenets of this institution. I believe in, you know, this imaginary thing I've created is more important than this real human being who could actually benefit from my compassion. I think, I mean, as someone who grew up in a very conservative place, like the biggest thing I've observed is like fear and lack of exposure. You know, like I, my dad has still not come out to visit me in New York City because like he is fundamentally scared of New York City because he's heard. Does he know that of, like 10 year olds live in New York City? That, yeah, like, I. One day you can see like, you know, six year olds in the park and stuff. Yeah, I. The, afraid to be there. The crime statistics of my specific neighborhood are lower than his oh, yeah. city. No, it's almost universally the case. The crime statistics in major American cities are, are lower than they are in, you know, sort of rural and semi-rural areas. Uh, yeah. It's just that the crimes are being committed against them by people they know. So they don't feel as bad about it, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly <laughs> it is. He can extend empathy towards people he know and people similar to the people he knows. Right. He's like, Oh, I understand right. who you are, where you're coming from. I therefore can extend you more grace than the strange other I, from across the country. I come from sort of a smallish place myself and I don't mean to dunk on them. Uh, but, but I do think this is the virtue I mean, I think they have sort of completely different virtues, major cities and sort of rural or small cities, small towns. 
And I think the virtue of the small towns is that you take care of your neighbors, you look in on each other, you sort of like help your, your, the, the people around you. Uh, the downside of that is they, they need to be just like you is the demand for conformity. Whereas I think the virtue of cities is that they're more accepting of differences and, you know, you can live next to somebody who practices a completely different religion, or you can have 20 different ethnic groups in in an apartment complex and it's not a problem. They all live together fine, but you're probably not going to be as neighborly. You're probably not going next door and checking in on everybody or, you know, taking care, taking it like a church collection for somebody whose truck broke down. You're probably not doing that in, if you live in New York, uh, you're that, which is why you're more, you're more anonymous, I guess is what I'm mm-hmm. saying. So you're, you're more reliant upon, you know, big federal and, and public institutions to do the sorts of charity work that in a small town, you can take care of with a church potluck. Yeah. That's <laughs> exactly, know? that's exactly it as like the, the big government, small government argument that we want to have is it becomes a moot point because I'm like, well, where, where I am, there is no big church that takes care of everybody. Yeah, and, and it's really it it's really a rural government versus urban government uh, yeah. argument. And you, it'd be insane to try to run a city like New York uh, along, you know, these small town values because it just wouldn't work. You know, you need functioning sewers. You, you can't take like a, you can't pass the hat to pay for a new expressway. Uh, you know, you need, you can't just rely upon a church run orphanage. You need to have of, you know, a, a, a system that takes care of children and people in need. And, uh, you know, you, uh, it really, I think one of the reasons why cities are overwhelmingly liberal and rural areas are, are more conservative is that when you go to city, it's, it's impossible to deny the amount of, of role that like government and sort of social spending plays in everything, you, you know, crossing a bridge, getting on a subway, you know, going up a high rise, you know, all these things, it, it would be impossible if you with, you know, under a, a purely sort of cracker barrel capitalism, you know, that, that, that conservatives seem to think we can, you know, go back to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think one of the, most interesting elements returning to to comic books dear listeners thank you for listening to this sorry yeah corner. i didn't mean no, to, it, i completely very interesting to me no the, i went there too it's very fun um i think one of the big first release valves for me out of conservatism was through art was realizing like huh every single writer that has anything interesting to say tends to be a pretty liberal person and i keep being exposed to all these liberal ideas that i've never heard of before and i think i mean big topic of the last two three years has been like book bannings in schools and i it hurts me so much because so much of my like great awakening in my life came from things as silly as like a saga comic book that i pick up and like oh that's the first trans person i've ever heard about and it's in a positive light like that's going to affect me for the rest of my life and i i guess i i wanted to get your opinion as someone who clearly holds a lot of liberal and leftist political ideas how do you feel about expressing that through art and people trying to stop that expression in recent years yeah, I think it's what they're really doing is trying to stop society from mutating, trying to stop society from evolving, trying to control the mutating genes, which are our writers and artists from allowing society to evolve into something better. And I think the reason why artists and writers tend to be 
more left leaning or more liberal is because uh, we, 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 what art is essentially about is about the, 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 how the world is killing you and killing other people and needing to express that. And if you think everything's fine or think you should shut up and just deal with it, that's not really going to be a great wellspring from which to make art, you know? Um, So I think there's that it's, it's a sensitivity to the world and how it destroys people. That is sort of what makes great science fiction and great art and and writing in general, which usually means that you are worried about how other people are doing, you know? And, but I do feel like, this is the value of science fiction is that it allows you to talk to people who aren't don't necessarily share your beliefs or don't necessarily share your worldview about issues. You just set it on another planet. You just set it in the future. And suddenly you can, you can talk about it with people, without people feeling defensive or like that you're getting on a soapbox. Yeah. I think I read uh, an article from the New Yorker that came out this week about the role of art criticism. And they talked about giving your time and yourself to the opinions of the writer and the characters within. I think art tends to be an inherently liberal form as well, because you're being asked to see the world from other people's viewpoints, right? Like you're never yeah, going to bump right. into a book where everyone agrees with you. Writing is sort of an act of empathy. I mean, you're writing other characters who are nothing like you. You're trying to see the world through their eyes, even your villains, you know, they're never just evil for evil's sake. If you're doing it right. They have a perspective. They might be horribly evil people, uh, you know, murderous and uh, petty, but they have a perspective. You have to it'd make a good villain. You have to not necessarily redeem them, but you've got to be able to see the world through their eyes. And yeah. I think that, that, yeah, it's that central act of empathy that makes you uh, a good writer. And if you don't have it, then basically you're stuck just writing, you know, sort of plots. Yeah. <laughs> You're stuck writing, you know, uh, you're relying upon plot twists and, you know, um, formulas for keeping the reader's interest. So my question for you then, conflicting quotes here from two comic book greats, Charles Schultz, when he was at, he was asked in an interview, clearly Charlie Brown is you, who are these other characters? And he just laughed and he said, all of the peanuts are me. Like they're all me just talking to each other. And then Alan Moore pretty famously talks about going to find Swamp Thing out in like a tub full of muck. Do you find yourself more in the all of my characters are a part of me or I need to go and find my characters somewhere and channel them camp? Uh, I'm probably more the Charles Schultz model in that I feel like there's it's not so much that they're all like me or that they're all part of me. It's that I try to make myself part of them. Okay. (laughs) You know, I, I try to like think through their eyes and I try to like think about the world the way they would. And there's sometimes like one of the most fun characters I ever write, you know, is is Lex Luthor because (laughs) he says things that, you know, my reptilian brain that occurs to my reptilian brain. Like if I were, if I were that person, that's exactly what I would think. I don't because, you know, I've, um, I've, I've, I've worked on it. I try not to be that person, but if I were to indulge it, uh, that that's what I would probably be like. I don't know. Uh, but, but yeah, I think that there, the, one of the fun things about writing villains is you can uh, sort of these thoughts that you've sort of rejected and we all have, you know, thoughts, which are, you know, somebody cuts us off or whatever. We have thoughts of like what we'd like to see happen to them. It, we would never act on them, but it's kind of fun to act on them when no one's getting hurt, 
you know, it's kind of fun yeah. to act on them with the context of your own imagination and, and the pages of this comic or to write somebody who would. Uh, Larry David once said about, you know, Kirby enthusiasm, you know, they said, oh, you know, how do you feel writing this this guy who's just a complete jerk, this, this um, you know, sort of um, this antisocial guy, uh this misanthrope. And he said, Oh, that's the guy I aspire to be. He's like, that's the guy I wish I was. I wish I had the courage to talk to people the way that guy does. And I think sometimes when you're writing a villain or writing characters who aren't like you, that's what you're doing. You're, you're yeah. talking about, well, I wish in this instance I had the courage to do that. Or I wish I, I didn't have the scruples that I do. I would have done this. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I currently in in the throes of getting my own novel published and the, my favorite character right was the awful like Lex Luthor is a, a close comparison to just this insufferable businessman that like everything he does is clearly failing upwards and yet looking down on everybody around him at all time. And I mean, we don't the know. Thing any... I like about that Lex Luthor is he can kind of get away with, cause he's so rich and so powerful. He can kind of get away with saying the, the quiet part out loud. Yeah. He can just tell you exactly what he's doing because he knows there's nothing. He doesn't need, feel the need to sort of like couch it in this sort of, you know, corporate doublespeak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you look at Lex Luthor and you're like, I wish we had this caliber of villain. Like, look at look at our Lex Luthers in our world and none of them are that interesting no, to listen got, to. We got a lot of mediocre Lex Luthers. Gotta, that's how they should rebrand themselves. So... My final question for you today, and again, thank you so much for your time, is we've talked about your love of science fiction. We've talked about swords and sandals. Is there another genre that you are itching to write in? Or conversely, is there a genre you don't ever see yourself writing in just because you don't quite get whatever else is getting out of it? Well, one genre... And, and I don't, I never, I don't think I ever work purely in one genre. I think it's always sort of this mixed with that, mm-hmm. you know, science fiction mixed with satire or, you know, uh, history mixed with sword and sandal. But I, uh, one, I am writing a title that is very, um, mixed with like romance. It's okay. uh, sort of a, a dystopian rom-com, I guess I'd call it. And, uh, it's, uh, it's called Dear, Dear Prisoner. And it's about this woman who is the uh, the head of the secret police in this sort of future dystopian police state. And as such, everyone's terrified of her. So it's really hard to date successfully in that environment. So she realizes she needs some regular person to sort of give her advice to help her sort of like, you know, figure out how to navigate the dating field in this dictatorship that she helps run. And the only person she feels she can really open up to is this woman who's been locked in a dungeon, you know, in the, uh, in the iron palace where she lives. So she goes to this, this woman, this prisoner and like talks to her while she's shackled to the wall and asks her for love advice. And, and then when she, she gives her love advice, she uses it and her, her life starts changing for the better. And I won't say too much about it, but, uh, but yeah, it's sort of like dystopia mixed with romance. That's, that's great. That that sounds right up my alley. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Are there any projects you want to make sure that we point the listeners to go and check out? Obviously, traveling to Mars is coming to an end. Yeah, what is... and that would be my number one. Please check that out. I feel like it's maybe the best thing I've ever written, and it's coming to an end. And it'll be out in book form soon. Also, uh, Second Coming Trinity, uh, the the third volume 
time the second coming just dropped in trade paperback and you don't necessarily need to have gone back and read it all to to enjoy this one i think mm-hmm. so please check that out in serial also from ahoy just yes. dropped my, uh, my book about the the serial monsters so please keep those in mind the next time you are shopping for comics Yes, I I loved Serial. We we didn't talk about it on this show, but listeners absolutely go check out Serial. A really really fun afternoon. I I found myself in like Knives Out, like or I'm sorry, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like pointing at the screen all the time. Like I there, that's what that guy is constantly, and, and it was always in a fun, clever way. Great work on that. Yeah, that's nice. Thank you. I I yeah, it was a lot of fun. Great. Well. All right, everybody, make sure to go check out Mark's work at your local comic book store, and we will see you next time. Bye. Thank you.